You are listening to National Security Law Today. This is National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I'm Nicole, a member of the committee staff. And I'm Elisa. And I'm Andrew Barine, the Chief Executive Officer of CypherLock Corporation, to help co-host today as well. Andrew is also a former member of the Advisory Committee and the longtime editor of the Intelligence Community Law Sourcebook, which you can find on shopaba.com. But we are here today to talk with Glenn Gerstel, the General Counsel of the National Security Agency. Importantly, Glenn also served on the National Infrastructure Advisory Council under President Obama. Thanks for being here with us, Glenn. Thank you. Delighted to be here. All right, let's go over what the National Security Agency does and what your role has been there as the chief legal officer. Well, the National Security Agency is now celebrating its, uh, I guess, its 67th birthday. Uh, it started originally as a uh, secret agency founded uh, on, based upon an order of uh, President Harry Truman. The order was actually secret, and no one even admitted that it existed for a couple of decades, and that was true for the entire agency itself. That's obviously no longer the case, where everyone now knows what the uh, initials NSA stand for. They no longer stand for no such agency, but for the National Security Agency. So um, we've got two missions by statute. Uh, they're pretty simple uh, but uh, in terms of describing them, but in, in actuality and operations, they get quite complicated. And those two missions are, one, foreign intelligence, foreign surveillance uh, for the purposes of foreign intelligence, and I emphasize foreign. And secondly, uh, a cybersecurity mission, but it's not a cybersecurity mission covering all of government or indeed all of the American public or the economy. It's rather limited to basically protecting the classified networks of the Department of Defense and some contractors, something technically called national security systems. And those two missions uh, work together. They, they feed each other and support each other. The foreign intelligence helps us understand some of the adversaries in, cyber, in the cyberspace and our knowledge in the cyberspace helps us uh, uh, penetrate foreign uh, foreign uh, adversary networks. In terms of my own role, I'm the general counsel. Our work uh, at the general counsel's office looks a lot like the general counsel's office of a big corporation. Uh, NSA is a worldwide global enterprise. Uh, we have about 40,000 people around the world, a multi-billion dollar budget. So our, our general counsel's office looks like a lot of a big fortune, you know, 50 company or 100 company or something like that. And uh, except we obviously have a special area which focuses on intelligence law and a deep focus on cybersecurity. But in other respects, it uh, looks like a corporate law office with litigation department and, a, and an administrative law department, et cetera. Errant employees occasionally. Hopefully not. Yes, hopefully. All right, back in September of 2019, you wrote an opinion piece for the New York Times, and it was incredibly eloquently worded. Um, it was also a very well-developed call to Americans to change drastically so that we don't lose the digital revolution. Um, and your piece was, interestingly, in this time, uh, completely devoid of name-calling, blame-ascribing, or any of those sort of ugly things. Um, basically, though, it did paint a picture of us, Americans, individuals, and institutions, as really not prepared to respond to the increasing number of threats posed to us by the pace of technology and the pace of technological change. Um, and frankly, the rapid pace of the digital age in general. And as these new technologies are sort of washing over us, what do we need to worry about? You're right that technology is washing over us, and I'm by no means the first person to uh, to observe that. We are in a situation where the pace of change is literally unprecedented. 
and also the extent of the pervasiveness of technology, it, its meaningfulness in our everyday lives is just unprecedented. And when you think back at other technological changes, whether it's the advent of radio or TV or railroads or electricity, um, most of these went from development of a of a of initial technology, an invention or an innovation to becoming ubiquitous and impactful in the real world and everyday life over a period of decades. In some cases, you might even argue close to a century, say, take the railroad or the, uh, or the automobile. Um, and during that period of time, our society had a chance to understand the technology, to decide the roles of the public and private sector, and to uh, work out the societal laws and norms. In the case of technology, where we have what Google is, I don't know, 20 years old, YouTube is uh, less, far less than that, and uh, the, the iPhone is, I don't know, a decade or so old, I'm probably off by a couple of year or two, but, but basically we're, we're dealing with relatively short periods of time, and yet in that relatively short period of time, uh, this technology has become so powerful. This has an effect in the national security sector because we need in the national security sector to understand the role of technology, understand its impact, and dealing with that in a very compressed time uh, period presents a lot of challenges to us. Yeah, no, that's, that's a really interesting comment, Glenn. Glenn. As, uh, as a new CEO of a publicly held quantum encryption company, uh, I was actually really struck by uh, your focus on the importance of uh, the private sector and the government working together as we face these rapid changes in technology. And I'm wondering if you could speak further about what the importance is of government and private sector working together. Sure. To me, one of the most fascinating aspects of the digital revolution as it relates to the national security sector is how it's going to have an an inevitable and really profound effect on altering the balance between the private and public sector. We could spend a lot of time talking about it, but let me just summarize it very quickly, which is to say it used to be clear that it was it was government that had the ability to project national power. It was government that, or state-sponsored enterprises that, that uh, created uh, weapons of war and were able to project national power. Now we have private sector entities uh, who, because of technology, are able to develop technologies that, that could cause just as much harm as, as weapons. And it used to be that it was government that was clearly responsible for defending us, defending against foreign threats. And now, again, we have a situation where the private sector, uh, at least in the cyber area to take one, is in some level responsible for defending against not only domestic but foreign threats. Uh, So a foreign nation state attacks a a private corporation here. Um, We don't necessarily – we're not necessarily sending a B-52 against that country, even if we could figure out who did it. It largely remains the the, the province of the private sector victim to deal with it. Maybe that's not optimal and maybe that should change and we could talk about that. But – but suffice it to say that on a whole range of areas, technology is shifting the balance uh, purely from away from the federal government as a responsibility to national security, partly to the private sector. That's a shared responsibility. It's a complex, complicated area that is going to lead to lots of new changes. Yeah, no, and lots of opportunities for uh, collaboration. I was just in, as well. in San Diego at uh, InfraGuards, uh, the FBI InfraGuard uh, Cybersecurity Symposium. Uh, and there was a lot of conversation there about how foreign intelligence agencies are actually attacking the U.S. private sector uh, to include law firms and financial services companies and how, uh, as Americans, to defend those borders, we have to work in non-traditional alliances. So um, that's great. The, the other question that has come up a lot when we talk about these advancing technologies that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand are um, 5G, right? There's been a lot of conversation. Uh, lawyers have been paying attention to things that were happening 
happening in Europe and Britain and Australia related to 5G and restrictions. And I don't know if you could speak briefly uh, about what the national security concern is to Americans uh, when we talk about 5G. So 5G, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, uh, represents the next generation of of wireless telephony. Uh, And it's not simply an extension of our 4G cellular network. It's a really completely different uh, type of architecture, which involves um, basically moving away from a lot of hardware and more into software. So switches, instead of being a big black box, are now going to be electronic. And much of the control that used to be possible in telephone networks with a central switching station is now sort of dispersed out to individual um, in individual entities, individual endpoints and user points. The significance of that is this is going to permit a lot more benefits, but also unbelievable speed. So you'll be able to download an entire Netflix movie in just a a second or two compared to a few minutes now on, on your on your cell phone or iPad or whatever. Um, so there's going to be lots of benefits from 5G, but also it opens up a lot of vulnerabilities. And the United States government in particular and its allies are very concerned about equipment manufactured by some of the Chinese manufacturers such as Huawei. There's been some legislation on this. Huawei is a very um, aggressive Chinese manufacturer that has had a significant success in penetrating not only the third world, but the second world with sales of their 5G telephone equipment. Which and is the cons- cheaper, let's add. Which is, which is number one, cheaper. is significantly cheaper. Number two, is often backed up by loans, interest-free or long-term loans from the China Development Bank because China is approaching this as a whole-of-nation mm. approach to make sure they get their 5G equipment located around the world. There are U.S. Uh, domestic customers that are interested in buying less expensive equipment that seems to work well. Um, But there's a big issue, and that issue is there's a law in China that says all Chinese companies have to, I'm going to summarize it greatly, have to, in essence, hand over data and information as requested by the Chinese government. You're talking about the China cybersecurity law and regulation. Yes, exactly. And that's that's a key distinction for the listener to know. Here in the United States, there are constitutional barriers and legal barriers that, for instance, you and I can't collaborate uh, on sharing information to benefit U.S. economics, but that's not the case with China and many of our adversaries. Right. We could not have a more difficult, more different scheme than the one between the United States and China, which right. is China's an authoritarian regime without the anything even approaching our First Amendment or Fourth Amendment. And basically, if Huawei is was required to hand over information about its customers, who could be American or British or, or Australian or whatever, um, it's going to be obligated to do so. Uh, the nature of 5G equipment is that there's really no way of knowing for sure that it's perfectly safe and secure because even if you got a copy of the source code, you can't really see all the details in it. The, heart, the nature of the hardware is such that there could be an ability on the part of Huawei to capture data and surreptitiously send it back to China if that was the goal. We don't know that's the goal, but that's a, that's a vulnerability. Um, and it's almost impossible to completely mitigate against it. There are some ways, some steps you could can. But the only real way to completely mitigate it is to not have Huawei equipment in the first place. And that has been the goal of the United States because it doesn't think as a national security matter that it's appropriate for um, American businesses and uh, and our defense contractors to to be exposed to that kind of vulnerability. And we've made an effort to talk to our allies about that. 
But, you know, economics is important. Trading partners are important. And not all the allies are seeing, uh, seeing eye to eye with us on this, on this topic, which illustrates another complexity about the digital revolution, which is that, which is that it creates um, lots of complex relationships because of it breaks down borders and it, and it creates a lot of dependencies that are, that are, you know, really need to be taken into account in the national security context. Sure. So it sounds like 5G, the the Huawei issue is that it may be coming at a cheaper economic price today for uh, the purchasers, but it might be coming with strings in terms of future. uh, Hidden strings. Yeah, right. Hidden hidden strings uh, through through that public-private sector connection on the Chinese side. That's exactly right. And and there's a cultural dichotomy here. As a practical matter, we're pretty short-term thinkers, and the Chinese don't think that way. They think very long term. But um, so we've talked about 5G and what the implications are, the China cybersecurity law, all of these things are are implicated. But um, in addition, we have something known as the cloud right now. And cloud storage often involves multiple data centers across the globe. So one of the questions um, that I have is, we we have a Fourth Amendment here, which says that, um, you know, kind of no more and no less than this, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, uh, houses, papers, which I presume meant literally paper at the time, but not uh, sort of the digital disassembly and reassembly of thoughts and ideas, Um, but also to be uh, secure in their effects, which was, you know, not in any place defined against unreasonable searches and seizures uh, under the Fourth Amendment. But I'm not sure how that really applies in the digital world, though we seem to just sort of look the other way and apply it nevertheless. But how does the first Fourth Amendment, rather, as constructed, really apply to any of these situations that we're facing where the data is everywhere? It's not really yours. Um, you, you can't really function without a smartphone and all of its functionalities or do business in any meaningful sense. And yet your data is really everywhere. You may protect it against the U.S. government, but it seems like, based on what we've seen with the Facebook case and the Russian uh, malign influence, that other governments can often get it from the private sector. What are your thoughts? Well, your question raises lots of uh, interesting uh, sub-questions, one of which is the fact that uh, sort of electrons know no boundaries, so to speak, and as you correctly point out, uh, data um, uh, even even related to domestic communications might well traverse uh, international points and might well be stored abroad. And then there's this complex series of questions of exactly what protection are you entitled to? The Is your data subject to the foreign country where it resides, where it transits, or where it's controlled, and what is control of data, et cetera. So lots of complicated questions, and we could spend the whole podcast on it, but we won't. Um, but but you also touch upon a really fundamental issue, which I, which I would like to spend a minute on, which is sort of the role of the Fourth Amendment in the digital revolution. And um, if we can just spend a second on it, it's, it's pretty fascinating to go back and think about the history of this, which is the Fourth Amendment grew out of the British colonists' Uh, concerns over the Crown's troops coming in and blasting a blasting down their door looking for uh, basically items to be taxed um, and whether there was some contraband that hadn't been subject to tax. And that was the fun. And the colonists were incensed about it. It led to a series of provisions in some of the early colonial laws and the, the some of the constitutions, such as the Massachusetts Constitution before the formation of the United States that that contained a, a prohibition on against essentially government force, forcibly coming into your home and and look, looking for things and so the the significance of that is that if you look at the jurisprudence of the Fourth Amendment for the first I don't know 150 years after it was adopted in 1792 and you recall it was not part of the original uh, Constitution itself but after, if you look at the jurisprudence right up 
well into the 1900s, most of the cases on the Fourth Amendment are about physical searches and seizures, about an agent coming in and breaking down your door and trying to get into your living room. Nothing about electronic surveillance, of course, because it didn't exist. But even when the telegraph and um, and telephone started to exist, there was a fascinating case in 1928, which led to a very interesting dissent by Louis Brandeis, very prescient dissent by Louis Brandeis, in which it was decided that wiretapping a telephone, and I'm greatly summarizing it here, didn't implicate the Fourth Amendment, that there was no search or seizure going on. You weren't searching anything. You weren't seizing anything. You were just listening. And the Chief Justice commented that all that's happening here is just people listening. And so that wasn't, that no Fourth Amendment was implicated. And fascinatingly, you would have had to wait till the Katz case, K-A-T-Z case, Katz versus United States. The first Katz uh, case. Right. Because there are two. Yep. Uh, until it was decided as a, as a matter of the nation's precedent that uh, electronic surveillance was within the, uh, the Fourth Amendment. And that's pretty late, the ni- late 1960s, for that to happen. And think of how ubiquitous uh, electronic communications and telephone had, had become by then. So turning now to today, uh, the most recent pronouncement uh, in the Fourth Amendment area is the uh, decision of the Supreme Court in the Carpenter case um, a couple summers ago, um, which basically held that the collection of geolocation data from cell phones for over seven days. If you're tracking someone's whereabouts for over seven days, you need a warrant. And there were several opinions of this of the court, uh, which shows that even the brightest minds can't agree on exactly what, what the law of the land should be in this area. And I mention this point because the Fourth Amendment is being is being asked, so to speak, by our country and our Supreme Court to apply to an area that was never conceived of digital technology. And how the court deals with this, um, with the principles that are somewhat changing, is a really fascinating issue. And clearly, we we are we have not seen the end of that. So there's a lot more to come in this area. And certainly challenges for legislators as well. I mean, at the state and federal level, Absolutely. Congress, uh, Absolutely. understanding the shifts in technology and creating new laws right. uh, to keep pace in a rapidly changing yeah. world. And ultimately, the Fourth Amendment principles grow out of uh, societal desires and policies. And of course, mm-hmm. if you go back to Brandeis's famous article about the right of privacy, which grew up because of the invention of instant flash photography and the ability to transmit pictures across the country by wire, that's what it's all about. That led to a sense of privacy that frankly probably didn't really exist the way we know it in 19th century America. And what does privacy really mean today? When, to pick some names, Facebook, Amazon, Google, you name it, knows way more about, at least me, than the government knows about me. Right. That's a pretty fascinating thing. And how's the Fourth Amendment going to take care of that dichotomy? And I think, I think generally, you know, you talk to, I talk to people in the Midwest a lot. I talk to people outside of kind of the tech sector and D.C. circles. And I think the public at large may be coming to realize now that there, there are private sector mass interests to do targeted ads and bulk data collection. Uh, that that they're beginning to realize that there are private sector interests that, just as you said, are collecting more data on them even than the national security interests of their own government. So um, I, I, I find that interesting. I think that's one of the areas the ABA has been really forward-leaning on uh, are these constitutional right. issues related to cybersecurity and privacy. And, and let me be clear, just uh, it goes without saying, but but just to make the make the statement, uh, we get tremendous benefits from from all from the digital revolution and from having all this information available. So it's not it's not the question that we need to shut down the information, but we need to think about what does it mean for parties to have such a collection of seemingly anonymized information that it's really possible to build a complete digital picture of your life. 
And is that something that we care about? Do we have a societal concern about it? Are we worried about the government doing that, the private sector? I think these questions need to get sorted out over the next decade or two. Yeah, I think it makes it difficult. And I'll just comment that I think it makes it difficult for uh, folks like you and your colleagues at other national security agencies in these general counsel roles uh, when foreign adversaries do not have these types of barriers. Uh, so foreign adversaries uh, in kind of the counterintelligence wars can make maps of our personnel, make maps of our industry, our defense industrial base. Uh, and U.S. intelligence, you know, uh, needs to play, uh, I guess, really above board. And so uh, it, it, fighting clean against people who are fighting dirty uh, is tough work. So I just want to say thank you to you and to your colleagues uh, in those legal offices that, that keep, the, keep us fighting fair, even though our enemies may not be. So I think it would be interesting if, if Carpenter had been sort of argued on different grounds. And I think one of the things that was missing in the case of Carpenter was um, it wasn't exactly modern. I think the, the facts of the case had happened, what, almost a decade prior to the uh, Supreme Court hearing it. But I think one thing that's interesting is nobody argued in that case that um, Carpenter had given all of, seeded all of his data to various application developers. There wasn't a laundry list of how many people would have, he would have had to consent to his geolocation information. That just wasn't before the court. And so much like the telephone uh, opinion prior to CATS, when frankly people use party lines, at least according to my grandmother, um, and you had no expectation of privacy because, you know, it entertained themselves apparently. Everybody in her little Appalachian town listened to each other. Um, I'll be interested to see where it goes. But I'd like to talk to you about a completely different topic because this is like the vortex and it could suck us in and we could have one of those, you know, college conversations that go on forever and ever. But I'd like to talk about readiness because we're talking about a revolution, a digital revolution. And what I'd like to know is how we're confronting cyber attacks from hostile countries. We've heard of another one uh, today. Um, and I'd just like to know from a national security perspective, and our, I'm sure our listeners would like to know, what exactly are we doing, and is it enough? So for the past, I would say, at least four, maybe six years, uh, the number one threat that has been announced by the, uh, the Director of National Intelligence in his opening testimony every year at the something called the Annual Global Threat Hearings of Congress has been the cybersecurity threat, the threat presented by malicious cyber activities. Um, they, we've identified um, a number of countries that, that have uh, cyber offensive capability. I, I don't know what the n- number is currently, but I've seen uh, some think tanks and others estimate that, I don't know, 40, 50 countries may have this capability. But we're principally concerned about four of them that have really organized nation-state efforts to penetrate our networks, in some cases to steal our intellectual property. Um, I and, wonder who you're talking about. And those are four countries will, uh, with Russia, which has a particularly strong interest in influence operations. We can spend some more time on that. China, which is arguably the perpetrator of one of the greatest transfers of wealth in the history of the world by transferring over the last two decades vast amounts of information from our defense contractors, our universities, our hospitals, our research institutions, in fact, just plain American businesses across the board. Um, North Korea, which uses cyber as a means to uh, support its uh, rather corrupt uh, regime and uh, looks for opportunities to steal Bitcoin and to uh, to take economic advantage of by uh, using cyber to get into people's bank accounts and other financial transactions. And then Iran, which uh, generally has a, a, a mischievous role, generally using to uh, try – it's been – 
caught trying to get into U.S. infrastructure and uh, other parts of the economy. So those four countries are ones that are the most uh, uh, that are the subject of most of our focus. The United States has very, very good insights into these four countries, and we also have an offensive capability, not in the form of NSA, but in the form of our sister organization, which is the United States Cyber Command, which is a so-called joint combatant command. It's the newest one uh, up until the Space Command had just been formed. And um, its role is to be in a position to address our adversaries' behavior in in cyberspace. Um, This is clearly an area where for the next couple of decades, this is going to be the defining issue uh, for our country in terms of dealing with uh, cyber threats. It's really interesting. You know, um, when you talk about those state threats, you talk about Iran. Um, just last week, the Department of Homeland Security's Critical Infrastructure Security Agency released an alert titled Potential for Iranian Cyber Response to U.S. Military Strike in Baghdad, uh, which highlights a number of increased threats, uh, and, and, and then there's been some press activity by Chris Krebs, the director of that agency, and also uh, William Evanina, uh, who's the director of the National Counterintelligence and Security Center. Um, we might think about putting in, the, in our um, footnotes to the podcast that Iranian alert, and maybe uh, also another thing is the National Counterintelligence Security Center uh, released some private sector advisories and best practices just in last week, uh, uh, perhaps coincidentally, uh, but but certainly to those four actors that you just named. Um, but I think one of the interesting things about the Iranian threat that Chris Krebs mentioned, he said that the private sector needs to start getting ready that it's possible the next breach could be their last, by which he suggested that the Iranian regime, uh, its intelligence agencies, proxy actors, sympathizers, or even outsourced contractors could begin attacking U.S. critical infrastructure uh, in ways that would be destructive, not only in terms of data theft. So I'm wondering, given your really deep background in critical infrastructure security policy, um, in addition to kind of the, the advent of CISA and its its evolution at the Department of Homeland Security, are there other things that could be done nationally to better protect our critical infrastructure, which is in large part owned by the private sector and operated by the private sector? You've hit upon a very significant uh, potential vulnerability for the United States, which is that uh, we have, unlike other countries where there's state-owned enterprises and government-owned in, uh, uh, government-owned inf- infrastructure, in the United States, most of our critical infrastructure is owned and operated um, by the private sector. That provides a richness of diversity and innovation and all sorts of economic uh, and efficiency benefits in terms of efficiency, but it also creates um, a large, shall we say, attack surface, so to speak, um, for someone who would do cyber mischief. Um, I would say that we've made a lot of progress in the nation over the last several years in terms of of making sure our defenses across the board in most sectors of of the critical infrastructure. And by that, we're talking about everything from air transportation, ports, um, water, the the electric grids, uh, the banking system, et cetera. They're, I think, under PPD 28, Presidential Policy Directive 28, there's some I probably lost track of 16 particular uh, uh, sectors, and they are assigned to various federal departments. So, for example, the Department of Defense, which I'm part of, uh, is responsible for protecting the defense industrial base as as part of its critical infrastructure. Um, so most of these sectors have been pretty good. Uh, I would say that uh, my my impressionistic sense, uh, just not a legal sense, but my impressionistic sense is that um, 
uh, organizations such as the banking and financial sector and the energy and electric grid are very far advanced in terms of their sophistication. Uh, other sectors may not may not be at that. They, for various reasons, they're more dispersed, less cohesive, so on and so forth. Um, so I think we've made great progress in in making sure that our defenses are are in pretty good shape. Uh, more work needs to be done to make them more resilient. I don't think we're going to be able to purely defend our way out of this. It's the old uh, hockey uh, goal example, which is you only need one goal to get in. Um, and so it's going to be very difficult to prevent that one goal from getting in. But if you're really resilient, uh, you'll be able to recover from this. So this is a big focus for NSA working hand in hand with the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Bureau of Investigation to make sure that the private sector is, is as well positioned as it can be in this area. So broadly speaking, what are the solutions to this threat from the increasingly rapid technological development that we've been discussing? I don't think there's any one. I'd like to say, it would be nice, I'd like to say that, yes, we found the silver bullet, we found the magic drug, we found whatever the the perfect cure is, but but that's not the case. The nature of the threat is too diverse, uh, uh, too ubiquitous, um, and, uh, and as I said, there are numerous actors who are Constantly, um, as soon as a new patch is developed, looking for the next vulnerability or the next uh, the next opportunity. So, I think it's a mistake to think that we're going to solve the cybersecurity problem by coming up with one solution. Uh, but we can have a multi-layered approach, which is more active defenses. People who patch their computers. Indeed, just uh, yesterday, a big announcement was made by uh, Microsoft about a particular vulnerability in Windows 10 operating system based on a on a vulnerability that NSA itself discovered and pointed out to them. So people need to patch their computers. This is true for both homes and businesses. Um, I think we need to have some level of resilience so that if a computer is subject to a ransomware attack, there's a backup data, et cetera. Um, people need to worry about making sure data is encrypted. So there's a whole multi-layered approach that, that we can take to this. And I think if we do that, uh, we will find ourselves more immune to cyber attacks. Not not 100%, but better able to, to weather them. Uh, would that people would do that. I do remember the, uh, the Senate report, the Senator House, on the um, election system. And it was a little shocking to see how many states hadn't actually patched their systems, even when they were told. Uh, here's a particular vulnerability or a, a hole in that code. Well, not everybody has the most up-to-date version of uh, the Windows or Apple software on their systems. And when you have an older system, uh, when you have a system that's complex with different operating systems on it, it's not just a question you push a button and roll out a patch. Uh, sometimes they need to be examined. You need to spend money to figure out how to adapt them. So I, I understand why municipalities, in, to, to pick on municipalities for a minute, um, ne- aren't always necessarily in the best position to, uh, because it's it's costly and complicated, but um, ultimately our society needs to get there. So as you get ready to walk out the door, because uh, I think you are for the last time, what are your parting thoughts and what guidance would you give to law students and young professionals who are interested in something like a legal career at NSA or somewhere else in the intelligence community? Well, I'll take the second part of that first, which is uh, – I don't know if anyone is going to be look, looking to me for guidance. I wouldn't necessarily. I would say don't necessarily fo- emulate or follow my footsteps. I spent uh, forty years in a private law firm and only then was looking for some public service and got incredibly lucky and had this fabulous opportunity to to uh, help in the uh, help keep our nation safe at, at, the, at the national security so at national security agency. So I feel incredibly lucky that way. Um, if I had to do it all over again, just personally, I'd probably start a little earlier in my particular career and uh, get more involved in it. Just now that I know how fascinating and rewarding it is, and it and it truly is. 
Um, but there, but there's no one. The point I'd make is there's no one path. We 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 hire at the National Security Agency folks right out of law school in our honors program. We also have folks who join us uh, midway through their career as more experienced people. Uh, that's true also for the rest of the intelligence community. So there's no one path to follow. But I think anybody who does get involved in uh, in public service uh, finds it, uh, perhaps to their surprise, perhaps not, unbelievably rewarding and satisfying. So so that is definitely a, a major, major factor. Um, in terms of uh, leaving the agency, uh, which I'm doing uh, rather shortly after four and a half years, it has been an extraordinary opportunity and a privilege. That may sound a little corny, but it, it absolutely is true. I had a wonderful job as a private sector lawyer. I got to travel around the world with, with a law firm and serve overseas, and I thought I had a terrific job, and I did. But it didn't compare to the satisfaction I get at uh, at the National Security Agency. Um, I, I've been very struck because I, I didn't have experience in the military, unfortunately. But I've been very struck um, at just the caliber of people who are at the National Security Agency and elsewhere in the intelligence community, the Department of Justice, Department of Defense, elsewhere. Um, the caliber of people uh, they can make more money elsewhere, but they choose to undertake public service, and I just. I really just wish the American people could see more broadly uh, the kind of dedicated, high-caliber people who are operating in the national intelligence sector, in the intelligence community, and the defense establishments, and the level of integrity and commitment is just remarkable. Not a swamp. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. I've enjoyed it and look, look forward to continuing uh, the dialogue with all of your listeners. Well, for our listeners, a reminder that you can find links to the Black Letter Law and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. We will be back next week with more content. So remember that to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice, drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org or on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter at, at ABA NatSec and on Facebook. We welcome your feedback. Bye. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.